health doc. Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Welcome back to How's My Financial Health Doc Podcast. I have invited back JP Laporte, a pension lawyer, to discuss again further deeper into the realm and topic of private pensions, particularly the pension called Personal Pension Plan, the PPP. And what we're going to talk about today is really how private pensions can help with intergenerational wealth transfer that is tax-free. And I like the word tax-free because it means that a lot of your money can be kept within your pocket and your family's pocket without going to the CRA. So how does private pensions allow you to do that? And that's what we're going to dive into today. And so let me remind the audience who JP is. So JP is a pension lawyer. Drawing on over a decade of experience as a pension lawyer for several prestigious Toronto firms, including Bennett Jones LLP, Faskin Martino LLP, Osler and Hoskins and Harcourt LLP, Jean-Pierre Laporte JP has dedicated his career to improving pension legislation and frustrated that the significant benefits of pension were not really available to those outside of large companies, JP created the personal pension plan to level the playing field and open up a new world of financial options and increase retirement savings for corporate professionals. In 2004, JP set out to create a better solution for investors that wanted improved asset protection while minimizing taxes. With an impressive academic background at the University of Toronto, Osgood Hall Law School and the Institut d'études politiques de Paris, he is often called upon as an expert witness before the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance. And he has written several seminal articles on pension reform, including an expansion of the Canadian Pension Plan. JP is with us again today discussing how PPPs and private pension plans can help with intergenerational wealth transfers. Okay, so welcome back, JP, to our show. Uh, it's a real delight for us to have you back with us today. I'm speaking with uh, Jean-Pierre Laporte, JP. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to be addressing another aspect of the personal pension plan, something that we did not talk about previously, and I'm hoping to dig a little bit deeper into that. So uh, welcome back, JP. Oh, nice to be here again. Just so that we, uh, the audience, uh, have a, maybe a quick summary of what a personal pension plan is, PPP, why don't we do start by a, a quick recap? So just the structure of the PPP, what does that, what does that entail? Well, it's a combination registered pension plan. So it combines three accounts under one roof. You have a, a first account called the defined benefit account which is if you're familiar with individual pension plans, that's what it is. So everything an IPP can do, we can do. We just call it the defined benefit component. Then there's a defined contribution account, 
which means that the contributions are defined by a formula like 1% of salary, 2% of salary, all the way up to 18% of salary. That's your defined contribution. And then there's a third account called the additional voluntary contributions account or AVC. And that allows you to make some personal contributions and perhaps more importantly, to transfer existing RRSPs or even RIFs into the pension plan on a tax-free basis. So that's the basic structure. Three accounts under one roof with three different sets of rules that determining how you can put money in the plan. So these three pillars of the plan uh, makes up the, the total structure which contains the total amount within this pension moving forward, correct? Correct. So now that we talked about that, in our previous episodes, we spoke a lot about, you know, the different tax efficiencies of this pension. Let's uh, remind the audience what the major ones are. And I don't want to go back into the detail of everything, but just so that we remind ourselves, you know, these are why we're thinking about this pension plan because of these reasons, just so that we can just get the conversation started. Yeah. Well, about 98% of your audience would be using an RRSP right now. And with an RRSP, you get one single tax deduction, the contribution you made that year. That's it. With the PPP, instead of getting one deduction, you get seven deductions. And they occur at different times and at different uh, periods in time. So for example, when you set up the plan, you'll have what we call a buyback of past service. So we'll be looking at your historical salaries and we'll be calculating how much of a pension can we purchase right now using corporate monies. So that creates a corporate tax deduction. We can also do a double dip. We can also contribute money to your RRSP in the first year. So then we have another deduction at the personal level through the RSP system. And that RSP can be rolled into the ABC account that we were just talking about. Then there's the annual contribution, which if you're over the age of 40 will be higher than what an RSP allows. Then there's what we call special payments. So additional corporate tax deductions to top up the pension plan when the assets don't return 7.5%. Then we have another contribution called uh, the PA offset amount. So I told you about the double dip in the first year to your RRSP. In subsequent years, you're allowed another $600 to your RRSP or to the AVC account of the PPP. That's a personal tax deduction. And then there's another de deduction or contribution called terminal funding. And that's when you decide to uh, start drawing a pension from the pension plan early, before age 65, for example. Normally, your pension would be reduced, you'd be penalized because you're starting sooner. But thanks to terminal funding, your corporation can take pre-tax dollars and dump them into the pension plan, creating a corporate tax deduction. And that extra money allows the pension plan to offer you a higher pension sooner. So that's the, uh, those are the, the key deductions. Now there's more, there are more deductions. One is the investment management fees are all tax deductible within a PPP. Another one is that if you borrow money corporately, if your corporation borrows money to contribute to the plan, the interest paid to uh, the pension plan, sorry, to the lender is, uh, is tax deductible. And then there are more tax deductions that I won't even get into once you're in retirement mode. But you see the big difference is in one case, you have one deduction and in the other, you have seven. 
These sevens that you mentioned are very powerful because they do amount to a significant amount of money and, and, and funds. The one that, you know, after our discussion, I, I sat back and listened back over to our recording and I found the terminal funding to be really, really powerful. Uh, as you mentioned, if I feel like I wanted to retire early as a physician, and when I say retire, I don't really mean retire. I mean, not do what I currently do. <laughs> you know, there's this term called FIRE, uh, which is commonly spells out, you know, uh, financial independent retire early. But a friend of mine told me FIRE means financially independent recreational employment. And I found, and I found that to be a much more pleasant term because you know, most of us, uh, whether we're nurses or doctors, we don't want to retire. We enjoy our work. So, but this terminal funding allows us to do that even earlier. So instead of, instead of doing fire at 65, I do fire at 55. And now I've got this entire amount where I can still put in as an additional amount and get the tax credit on that. And you mentioned last time, it could be as high as 500,000 to almost a million, depending on uh, what 2 million. 2 million, depending on, on, you know, your income and the time that you want to take from your 65, sorry, the time, the time that you want to take before 65. And from that amount, you can obviously save a lot of taxes on that. But the nice thing about people who are incorporated, and you can only do this if you're incorporated, is that, you know, the work that you do past that, what I call fire stage, is that you take the you take your income as a dividend, not as a salary. So you get to continue to work recreationally, as I say, and still get the benefit of the pension. So for me, that's like having a cake and eat it too. Well, you're missing two other pieces, Boo. Oh, so because what am I only, missing? Not only are you pulling money out of your company on a pre-tax basis without creating a taxable problem for you, and it allows you to retire early with this corporate money now sitting in your pension plan. Yeah. You're also purifying your business if you ever decided to trigger the lifetime capital gains exemption. Because that's another 870 some thousand dollars tax-free capital gain waiting for you, but only if you purified your business first. So the thermal funding could be a massive purification process. There's, so there's another massive tax write-off that, that we're missing out that we're not even talking about. And then on top of that, while you're pulling money out of the corporation, you're also protecting the company from these TOPI rules, the tax on passive investments, which further creates tax problems for people who don't use a PPP. So you've got another, yet another set of tax advantages that all feed in to this initial terminal funding deduction. So, and, and, and maybe there's a third, and I think you're gonna get to that, is that by sucking money out of the corporation and putting it into the pension plan, now that's capital that can be passed to the next generation on a tax deferred basis, thanks to the surplus rules that come with the pension plan. So there's actually three massive other tax strategies that all feed into this one uh, terminal funding step so i mean i'm glad you brought it up because this is exactly what we're talking about 
is the trans the wealth transfer mechanism and and the wealth transfer feature that is built into this PPP that we can take advantage of. So we're going to talk about that and spend some time on, on this in this podcast. But before we do that, I'm sure because it, it, you talked about it very quickly, and I'm sure people will ask me afterwards, what did you mean by purification? Can we just elaborate a little bit on that? Because I'm sure those questions will arise. Yeah. So corporations, small business corporations in Canada are granted a special privilege. And it's the privilege that if you sell your shares to a third party buyer um, and you qualify under the Income Tax Act, the capital gain that is normally taxable on the sale of those shares the first 800, and I can't remember if it's 700, 870 or whatever it is this year, let's call it $800,000. I know it's more, but the first 800,000 of those capital gains are going to be tax-free to you. You pay no tax on it. But in order to qualify, your corporation must meet certain tests. One of the tests is you cannot have too much by way of passive assets inside of your corporation. So if you've treated your corporation as a piggy bank, as a pension plan, a quasi pension plan, and you say, well, that's where my money is. I'm growing it within my corporation. And when I need money, I'll just put it, pull it out as a dividend or through some other means. You won't qualify for the lifetime capital gains exemption. So what the accountants and the tax lawyers talk about is this concept of purification, removing those passive assets off the balance sheet of the corporation whose shares are being sold and putting it somewhere else. Now, typically in the old days, what they would do is they would do a, an inter-corporate dividend. They would take those passive assets that are sitting on the balance sheet of the company that's being sold, and they would declare a dividend to a hold co. Inter-corporate, so Section 55 of the Income Tax Act. So now the passive assets are no longer on the balance sheet, and it's it, you purified the corporation. So now the shares are ready for the lifetime capital gains exemption. But that only defers the problem because now you've got passive assets sitting in a hold co that's being taxed at a punitive rate because it's not active business income. So when you're investing those monies in the stock market and you're making money, you're being taxed away at a super high rate. So it's kind of penny wise pound foolish. The PPP allows you to do the same purification except that, so because you're moving money from the balance sheet of the operating company that's being sold to the pension plan, it's off book, so you purify. But in doing so, you're claiming a corporate tax deduction. So you're getting some money back from the government as well. So that's, that's really what purification is all about. I mean, there are other rules that I won't get into, but that's the basic concept. I am very happy you brought up that concept because one of the main reasons physicians... Uh, healthcare professionals incorporate is to obviously make money through the corporation so that they can retain earnings so that they can use that earning to invest. And over the years, you can understand that people are using that as quote unquote, a piggy bank to save that dollar so that they can have enough retained earnings to invest and then retire on that. But what you're saying is by doing that, there are other pitfalls that we don't necessarily see right now that will happen 30 years from now. And so if, if we did the traditional way where we now provide the dividend to a hold co, all we're doing is just deferring that problem. Whereas having a PPP is a solution to that problem. We're not 
deferring the problem anymore. That's right. It's a more immediate, more tax effective way of achieving the same result. So you're getting Perfect. to the same point, except you're doing it in a more tax effective manner. Right. And, and you're doing it again, legally with, with all the tax act in place uh, and not, not having to worry about it and losing sleep over it when it's actually time to retire. Yeah, because it's in a registered pension plan. So that's governed by the government, regulated by the government. So it's not some shady tax scheme, you know, involving uh, art in, the, in Luxembourg. So far, you've told me everything that I've liked, that I like about the PPP and the registered pension plan. And it's even greater than what I thought it was. I want to come to the concept of deemed disposition before we talk about why we're talking today. Okay, so help us understand what the concept of deemed disposition upon death, what does that mean? And how does it apply to our savings, our RSPs, TFSAs, uh, other types of investment that we have accumulated through life in this corporation? Yeah, so when you have a registered account, like an RSP or a RIF, and you, let's say you don't have a spouse, or if you have a spouse, you both pass away at the same time. Because okay? if you pass away, but your spouse is still around, you can do what's called a rollover, a spousal rollover. Your RRSPs will go to your spouse's RRSP on a rollover basis, so there's no immediate tax. But what if both of you die in the same car accident or, or COVID, or, 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 or there's no spouse, you're single? or you're a widower or a widower, you know, what happens? Well, we have what's called under the income tax act, a deemed disposition. You're deemed to have disposed of all of the assets within the account at fair market value the day before you die. And then the estate now has to uh, cut a check to the government because they have to uh, realize the difference between the adjusted cost base and the fair market value that's deemed to have been acquired on the day of death. So what happens is usually half of your money ends up being paid in taxes. So you thought you had a million dollars for your retirement. I mean, your debt, so you don't need it, but your family only gets half because half of it is taxed away. That's the deemed disposition. It's the same thing when you become a non-resident of Canada. There's a deemed disposition, a departure tax. There are a bunch of deemed dispositions under the income tax. Like you always have to be wary about those. Just like trusts have a 21-year deemed disposition rule. Anyway, so for, the, for those who aren't really um, aware of these rules, this can come as a really bad surprise. You know? But that's just what 98% of Canadians will be facing because they're using an RSP or a RIF as one of the primary modes to save for retirement. They're not, they're not thinking about pensions. I mean, I've said this many times and you're confirming it. The biggest tax bill is a time of death or the day before death. That's the, tickest, the biggest tax bill we'll ever pay in our life. What you're also saying is so that the audience understands. So a couple, husband and wife, let's say the, the wife passes away earlier, the RSP and RIF money rolls over to the husband. And then when the husband passes away, then it's deemed disposition for the entire amount of both the husband and the wife's amount. And whatever's left after taxes goes to the estate, to the children. Right. So if, if they had, let's say 
both together a million dollars. Children don't get a million dollars. They get half of that after tax. So that's what the deemed disposition is. Now, for someone who is not married, who's single, there's no rollover, obviously, and the deemed disposition happened immediately or the day before they die. So that's what that means. And what you're saying is in the RSP, in the RIF, in the TFSA, in all of these accounts, you cannot bypass that. It, it will happen uh, at time of death. There is a deemed disposition. Yeah, the RSP and the RIF is in uh, shares of private companies. That's what happens. That's the law. Almost virtually every Canadian that's using those types of assets will be facing it. Right. That's now, you also mentioned in our previous conversation, the shares within the corp. So I'm, I'm incorporated. I have you know assets inside my corp. Uh, at time of my death, my corp has to collapse. And at that point, it's deemed, it's, it's deemed to be deemed disposed, right? It's uh, not that the corporation has to collapse. It's that the when you bought those shares, when those shares were issued to you, they probably were issued for a dollar or one correct. cent. And that's the adjusted cost base. Yeah. Now they're being disposed at fair market value. So if there are assets within the corporation, those shares represent the value of all those assets in it. Correct. If you've got $2 million worth of assets, your share costs you one penny, and now it's worth $1,000. So that's your capital gain. Yeah. So now that has to be recognized into income. Right. So what I'm hearing is that if you are incorporated and if you, you need to be incorporated to do all the tax uh, savings that we talked about, the tax saving vehicles, that even within the corporation at time of death, there is tax to be paid. You cannot escape that even inside a corporation. It's part of your, it's part of your estate. It's part Correct. of all your worldly goods that you're leaving behind. Shares is, is property, just like a, a bank account. Right. And we mentioned also the same thing happened to trust as well. Yeah, so trusts are deemed to be this, to have a deemed disposition every 21 years because normally you can avoid the taxes on death by having a trust hang on to the shares because they're not going through your estate. They're held by the trust. So they don't flow through your estate, therefore no deemed disposition. But the shares that are held by the trust will eventually get taxed when the 21-year period elapses. In all of those circumstances, whether we talk about RRSP, RRIF, uh, shares within the corp or even with the trust, there is going to be at some point a deemed disposition. And so from that, I'm going to segue into why we got together to talk about this today, because this is, I think, one of the portion of the PPP that needs to be discussed because it's even more powerful. I, I, I would venture to say it's even more powerful than the seven tax features that is in the PPP. And that is even more powerful than the terminal funding in my mind. And so what am I talking about? I'm talking about the wealth transfer capability inside a pension plan, a personal pension plan. So JP, I do not want to mess this up. I would like you to explain to us how that works. So just we'll just start with the how, and then we'll continue a little bit. But I want you to give us a 
a 30,000 view of what that means, and then we'll, we'll dive deeper. Well, you know, the best way to explain it is through a real life case. So I had a client from Alberta that came to me. He used to have an IPP. He'd done extremely well. In fact, he had about $8 million worth of assets inside of his IPP. And so we upgraded him from an IPP to a PPP because there's a whole bunch of advantages, which I think we covered a little bit last time. Then the first thing that I said is, okay, do you have any children that are on the payroll of your company? And the client said, yeah, why do you ask? And I said, well, didn't your previous actuary recommend that you add your children to your IPP? And he goes, no. Well, why would I do that? It was his question. I said, well, since you're now retired and you have $8 million in your IPP PPP and your spouse is deceased, if you were to pass away, your children would get about $4 million instead of $8 million because of the deemed disposition. But if we were to add your children to the plan, in order for the children to be part of the plan as plan members in their own right. And the idea is this, once the client passes away in retirement, because he doesn't have a spouse to pay a survivor pension to, $8 million becomes pension surplus. It's surplus because there's no one to pay the pension. So surplus money is trapped inside the pension plan. And it now becomes available as an asset to fund the pension of the children that are also plan members who also have an entitlement under that same account. So this communal money is now available for the children. But if the children don't pull it out and leave it in the plan, it continues to grow tax sheltered for the next 30 years. So instead of giving $4 million to the tax authorities, we're giving it to the children. That's the basic essence of how intergenerational wealth transfer works. So in this $8 million surplus that is still staying in the plan, and since the children are in the plan, then they get to benefit from this surplus. And since it's not deemed this position, there is no final tax bill on it because the plan continues. Yeah, there will be tax when they start pulling the pension monies 30 years from now. In as income. Hand, as income, they'll have to pay tax on it. So it's not like we've abolished the tax. We just deferred for another 30 years. And all that money, that those 4 millions are now going to grow tax sheltered. So there'll be interest on interest. So the pool will get even bigger. But actually, in fact, it's 8 million that is interest on interest because 30 years from now, when they, when they pull out, they don't pull out 8 million. They pull out whatever the plan allows them to. Yeah. Uh, and if the 8 million now becomes 20 million, then the interest is on the 20 million. Uh, and they, so it continues to grow. Yeah. And if, if the family continues and those children have children that join the plan, then that third generation will have $20 million to work to, to, to deal with. Correct. From a mechanics perspective, this plan, this pension plan sits inside a MPC, a medicine professional corporation. So what if my children are not doctors and I'm dead? What happens to that plan? How can that plan continue when so, the MPC needs to collapse? So you have to remember, and your, your viewers or listeners, I should say, should know this, but an MPC is really a regular corporation where the College of Physicians and Surgeons 
has imposed some additional requirements. If you're no longer practicing medicine, you can have those requirements stripped off and it becomes a regular corporation like any other corporation. So whether or not you're practicing medicine is irrelevant. And if your children are shareholders or plan members, they will have access to that money, even if you cease to practice medicine. So let me, let me make sure I understand this well. So Dr. Joe Smith, MPC, and Dr. Joe Smith is still practicing as a physician. At age 70, Dr. Joe Smith stops practicing. So he strips away the, the medicine part and strips away the restriction part. So the corporation, Dr. Joe Smith Professional Corp, still continue can exist without those restrictions. Well, we'll and, change the name as well. Correct. We okay. Call it a professional corporation anymore. It'd be like the holding, a holding company or consulting company or whatever you want to call it. Got it. So it's a question of removing those professional restriction and but also continuing the entity under a different name. Yeah, lots of flexibility. I won't ask you why. I mean, it's obvious why one would want to do this. And so the question is, what is a good time to do it? Um, is it is it to do it when I'm about to retire? Is it a time to do it when my kids are adult and working? Well, my, my sense is you want to protect yourself as much as possible. If you want the strategy to be effective, you have to get the children that are on the payroll of your corporation in the plan as soon as possible. So, so as long as you can justify paying real T4 income for services rendered, so you respect the employer-employee relationship, and it's not a scam. It's you. They are doing services for your business, whether it's part-time accounting, part-time website design, promotion, whatever they do, as long as they're rendering services and helping you grow your business, then they're entitled to a salary. And if they're entitled to a salary, they're entitled to join the pension plan. Yeah, I think, I think you should join as soon as possible because you never know what life has in store for you and you don't want to run the risk of dying before you put the children in the plan. When we talk about, you know, employment to the court, most of the time we're talking about legal age of work. And so I believe the legal age of work is somewhere at 14 or even 16. And so the moment they can, they can earn a salary at Cineplex or at Wonderland or wherever it is, and they can do legitimate work for your MPC, that's when you would say, put them on the salary and put them on the pension, as long as they do legitimate work. Yeah, no, it has to be legitimate. You can't, you can't fool with the Income Tax Act. You have to, it has to be that the children are rendering services to the corporation. And because they're doing that, even if it's menial work, even if it's part-time work, uh, because they're doing that, they're entitled to compensation in the form of a salary. Now that you've created the employment relationship, they're allowed to join the pension plan because that's an, a benefit of employment. And it's that simple. It has to withstand audit from a corporate tax deduction point of view. Now, to that point, uh, we've talked about this with the IPP, that it doesn't make sense to do it before the age of 40 from an actuarial perspective, because it, it, it has more disadvantages than advantages. But inside a PPP, if my children are doing work for my company, and again, legitimately, 
we don't have to wait till they are 40 years old. Correct, because as long as you recognize one year of past service under the defined benefit bucket, the one that you're using as the primary plan member, then after that, the children can switch into defined contribution mode. And the defined contribution limit when you're young is significantly higher than under an IPP. So you're going to end up having a lot more money going tax sheltered over very long periods of time over what's possible in their own IPP. I, I think that is good that we were able to clarify that. So the question I have is, this seems to be a very powerful feature of this, uh, this pension plan. Would it be the same for the other pensions that we commonly hear about, the teacher's pension plan, the hoop, the homers of the world? Do those type of group pensions get the same uh, features of wealth transfer? Well, the principle is identical, meaning that if you retire on a pension and you pass away, and you, let's say you don't have a spouse, then the monies that was sitting inside of the pension plan for you, what we sometimes call the commuted value, could be a couple million dollars, that now becomes surplus. And other teachers or other physicians or nurses or whoever is participating in whatever plan we're talking about, they end up getting your money. So there is a transfer of wealth from uh, deceased retirees to active members of the plan, but it's not your family. So the law, the law works and that's why we can do this. But because you're dealing with strangers in these other types of large plans, that's not really where you're, you want your money to go. I mean, unless you're very uh, civic-minded and you, you want your millions to go to other doctors that maybe were colleagues of yours, then I guess it works. But for most people, they'd rather give it to their own children. So right. you can't do that in one of those large plans. So the idea is the surplus stays within the plan. It just depends who's in the plan. And exactly. if, your, if your children are not in the plan of of hoop or they're not in the teacher's pension plan because they don't happen to be teachers, well, that money doesn't go to your children. It goes to the other teachers. But yeah, the principle well, is the same. But even if they were teachers, like unless you're also a teacher, your surplus can't go to another teacher. This intergenerational wealth transfer, these rules apply because of the way defined benefit plans work in Canada. And what we've done is we've said, well, let's use this set of rules, but let's hive it off and only let family members enjoy it because you're now allowing family members into your plan exactly. as long as they are receiving a salary from your corporation. That's right. Which, That's which, right. Comes, which comes back to the idea of the moment they can perform legitimate work for your company, then you put them on your company payroll. That would be Again. my advice. That would be my advice. So you don't run the risk of passing away and you forgot to add the kids. So you end up with a deemed disposition like everyone else. Aside from group pensions, there are also these entities out there called multi-employer pension plan. Uh, and so these are set up for business owners, again, physicians, dentists, but they, they are one plan that includes multi-employers, not just mine, not, not my MPC, so multiple MPCs together into one plan. And if I understand you well, these multi-employer pension plan also will not have the same benefit as a PPP when it comes to 
intergenerational transfer of wealth within the family? Well, you, you have to realize that multi-employer pension plans can be either defined contribution in nature or defined benefit. So if you have a multi-employer pension plan that's defined contribution, there is no surplus generated because the concept of surplus is native to defined benefit plans. So that only leaves uh, defined benefit multi-employer pension plans. And then the question is, how is surplus treated under those plans? So if the terms of the plan allow for surplus to be segmented by employers, so let's say there are 50 different employers in this one big defined benefit multi-employer pension plan, if we can have surplus attributable and segmented within employers, then yes, you would be able to do some of this intergenerational wealth transfer. But if the rules say that surplus is generic, then you're bleeding your money with the common pool with all these other people, these other employers that you have nothing to do with. So it's really have to be careful in reading the fine print of how they would treat the surplus. Yeah, you have to look at the plan texts, surplus rules to make sure that you can hive off and, and, and attribute some of the surplus. And that becomes uh, difficult when there's one big pool, one big pension plan for the entire multi-employer pension plan. Right. Because if some of the surplus is because of certain types of investments that uh, relate to an employer with a thousand employees and your contribution to that surplus is minuscule because you only have two employees then you, you you know there won't be as much surplus for your group so it makes things a little bit more complicated at least uh, at the minimal and potentially if the surplus is not treated in the way that you think it would be because you cannot keep it within your family, then it makes it impossible even within the uh, multi-employer pension plan. Yeah, it certainly wouldn't work for the, a DC plan, a DC multi-employer plan. And from what I understand from these multi-employer pension plan, they're mainly DCs. A lot of them are, yeah. question about IPP because people like to compare IPP to PPP when it comes to this particular question. So can IPP do the same intergenerational wealth transfer as well? And if so, why, why weren't they done before and what are the drawbacks? Yeah, so technically speaking, you can put children inside of an IPP as members and therefore open up the possibility of the intergenerational wealth transfer? So the answer is yes, you can do it. The drawback or the reasons perhaps why you don't really see it very often is that first of all, we have the age problem. So when you're between the ages of let's say 16 and 40, you're penalized due to your age when it comes to contributing to an IPP and so the loss, I mean, at, at 18, it's about $8,500 less than what you'd be allowed to do under a PPP. Now, if I take $8,500 and I grow that money tax sheltered at 7.5%, and, 
or 6% or whatever rate of return for 46 years or until the last year in which I have to pay tax on it, like at age 71, we're talking about immense amount of monies that the PPP customer will have that the IPP customer will not have. And then the process repeats every year because at age 19, while the gap is smaller and you have one less year for that money to grow, that's yet another amount of extra interest that you're not capitalizing on. All the way until age 38 when the limits between the PPP and the IPP are the same. So, so there's, there's this massive wedge of uh, untapped contributions that you lose out on when you have an IPP. And that translates into millions of dollars by the time you retire. So sure, you can do the intergenerational wealth transfer, but at the same time, you're shooting yourself in the foot because you're not getting all this extra money working for you over long periods of time. It's a kind of a half-baked solution. Right. The, the second big issue is that when someone dies, let's say you do the intergenerational wealth transfer, the, an IPP would be in excess surplus because there's so much money in the plan, the company is not allowed to continue to contribute on behalf of the survivors. Um, and then especially if you continue to be collecting a salary from your business, from the family business, you're going to have a pension adjustment. And that means you can't even put money in your RRSP. So your, all your tax relief disappears. Sure, you, you save money on death, but you can't keep saving money on a go-forward basis. With a PPP, our customers can switch into the fine contribution mode, which means that they're no longer generating those massive pension adjustments because they're not using that component anymore. They're, they're back into this fine contribution mode. Well, if they're not generating pension adjustments, there's nothing to eat away at your RSP contribution mode, which means our customers the next year can go and contribute to their personal RSP about 17% of salary, not 18 and get a personal tax deduction. So for us, death and the creation of excess surplus is not even an issue because we can flip into the fine contribution mode and continue to do RSP contributions the next year. The IPP doesn't have a defined contribution account, so it can't do that. If it did, it would be called a PPP. <laughs> and then, then there'd be nothing the PPP can't, uh, can do that the IPP can't because they can't do that. <laughs> right, but, but then it would be a PPP. Yeah. So let me understand this because if the amount is uh, significant and let's say we use that example of 8 million, right? So if we use that example of 8 million that, that was left over to the pension plan and now to the kids, 8 million is a lot of money. It's a lot of surplus. And so typically if they switch into a DC mode for the, for the children to continue to contribute and have that tax shelter, that's a lot of tax holiday that they need to take from the DB account now, right? Because $8 million is a lot. They probably will not be able to do the DB account ever again with that amount of surplus. Correct. So going forward, they would have to rely only on the DC account or the AVC account. Well, it'd be, it would, you wouldn't be contributing to either the DC or the AVC. You'd be contributing to your RRSP. The personal side. And then you get a personal tax deduction. Yeah. And then what you can do is that, let's say you put $26,000 in your RRSP, you, you roll, it, roll into it into the ABC account, and then the company can write off the investment management fees on those X RSP assets that you just rolled in. That's right. You're creating even more tax deductions for your business. 
Right. So let me repeat that. So once that surplus comes into the plan, they no longer will be able to do the DB component. So the way to do this would be to take it to take the tax shelter through the RSP side and then to roll that RSP later onto the AVC side to put it back into the pension. But now the corporation can write off the, um, the fees of the management of those assets. And you get to write off personal taxes from having contributed to an RSP because there's no pension adjustment stemming from the pension plan. Correct. Because you're Correct. not using the defined benefit formula. The only pension adjustment you have to face is the 1% DC transfer because you're going to take 1% of your salary, whatever that is, let's say it's $1,000 or whatever it is, and you can contribute it from the DB account to the DC account. Yeah. That's permitted by the income tax rules. It doesn't create any tax deductions, but it does create a pension adjustment of 1%. Yeah. So that eliminates the 1% of your RRSP room. Right. But you still have 17% to play with. That's why tax relief can continue on a personal side. So this is fairly complicated, uh, but also relatively simple <laughs> if, if one understands uh, the, the mechanics behind it. I just want to summarize by saying that in addition to the seven tax features that we've talked about, in addition to the terminal funding that we talked about, we now have another very powerful tax sheltering tool. And I, in my mind, um, it's more than tax sheltering because you could continue this on and on and on as long as the individuals can now sign on to your plan and it can go forever. And so I think this is, for me, the most powerful of all the tax sheltering tools and the tax saving tools within this plan. The, the other thing, uh, Vu, I should mention is, you know, we've talked about transferring surplus to your children through the SERP, through this intergenerational wealth transfer, which is laudable and great. But if you are very kind of charity focused, let's say you wanted to give back to the hospital that employed you or the medical school that trained you or whatever, some, some uh, charitable giving that you have in mind as part of your financial plan, you can make that registered charity, whether it's a hospital or university or whatever it is, a designated beneficiary of your pension plan. Okay. So yeah. what will happen is that pre-tax dollars from your MPC will be contributed to the plan they will grow tax sheltered within the plan. And on death, whatever percentage of your assets that you've earmarked for that charity will be paid to the charity. The charity is not a taxable entity. Normally, anyone that receives money from a pension plan has to pay tax because of Section 56 of the Income Tax Act. But if you're a registered charity or a hospital or university, you don't pay tax. So you get the money from the pension plan without having to pay tax on it. So the money is never taxed. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and then you, of course, you don't have to give all your money to your alma mater. You could say, you know, I, I my $100,000 is going to my alma mater. The rest goes to my kids. Right. So that's a way of creating tax-free transfers of wealth from your MPC to your favorite charity. And that's amazing. Seem to know this. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank, thank you for uh, sharing that piece because we all want to give back. I'm going to say we, most of us want to give back, especially uh, at time of retirement and, and near, near death. 
uh, I think we definitely want to give back to do community and society. And many of us have those uh, goals even before death. And so can that happen even before we die? Can I decide, you know, every year I want to donate, you know, 50,000 to my university. Can that be done through the pension even before death? Only if the pension plan has surplus due to investment returns exceeding the uh, 7.5% benchmark. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But if that in that, in that scenario, in the scenario of a surplus, those types of charity giving can happen tax-free yeah. even before death. It would normally be taxable under Section 56, but the recipient is a tax-exempt entity. Right. So when it computes its taxable income, it says, I'm tax-exempt. Amazing, amazing. The more I learn about this particular registered pension, the more I see the different advantages of it. JP, uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been amazing. I've learned so much today. Before we leave each other, again, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you last time. Anything burning on your chest that you must say on this podcast before we leave each other today? Yes, and it's always the same refrain. Please take the time to learn and don't listen to the first person that you ask advice from because often there's so many people with vested interests that will discard new ideas either because they don't make any money if you follow that advice or they just don't know about it and they don't want to sound stupid. So please take the time to do due diligence, learn about this stuff, because ignorance is extremely expensive. I say this a lot, and I'm glad you said it as well. If you think education is expensive, try ignorance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, right. well, it's been, it's been a pleasure, JP. Thank you very much. Okay. All right, take care. I know there's a lot of information to absorb. So the listeners may need to listen to this particular episode a few more times to really understand the nuances. Believe me, it took me a few times listening to this, even as I was editing it, to truly understand the nuances. And if you really want to understand private pensions for healthcare professionals, please go back to my episodes on IPP and the episodes on PPP and re-listen to that and understand the basics. This particular episode about intergenerational wealth transfer is really for the very sophisticated understanding of these products. I am so happy to have had JP on my show again and JP is just a wealth of knowledge about pensions. And for us as healthcare professionals, creating a personal pension plan, I believe is a must because of the tax burden that we face. And like me, if you believe that private pensions is one part of the solution to minimize your tax burden, then you must realize that a private pension plan cannot exist without incorporation. So I urge all of you healthcare professionals out there listening, if you have not incorporated, then you cannot do a private pension plan, whether it's IPP or PPP or MEPP. Recognize that private pension plans can only be done for corporations. So 
if you have not incorporated yet, my question to you is why? The governments have allowed healthcare professionals to incorporate so that we can enhance our retirement strategy. Take full advantage of that gift. Some of us have incorporated but have done nothing with it either. Taking the first step is just that, the first step. One must take the second, third, fourth, fifth steps to achieve the goals. And for those of you who have been told, do not incorporate if you leave zero retained earnings in your company is because whoever is advising you is not aware of private pensions. As you've seen with this episode, private pension plans are only possible after incorporation. And the earlier you incorporate and the earlier you take a salary, the more you can purchase past service and use the private pension plans as a strategic tool to mitigate the tax burden. So even if you leave $0 in the corporation and you spent all of them, there are strategic reasons why one should, in my mind, must incorporate. Incorporation, even if $0 is left in retained earning, is just a strategy. And for the minimal amount that must be paid every year to set up the corporation and file the taxes, the benefits more than outweigh the risk. If you have been given advice not to incorporate because you leave zero retained earnings in the company, you may ask yourself the question, is my advisor aware of private pensions for healthcare professionals and incorporated individuals? Is my advisor giving me the wrong advice? Well, I will leave it at that for now. I will take the opportunity to let you know about September 17th. That is when my next webinar, all-day interactive webinar, will be September 17th, 2021. It will be an all-day webinar interactive with you, the audience, when we talk about financial literacy for healthcare professionals. And all these topics will be addressed. So please visit www.beautifultimesinc.ca forward slash conference and workshops. www.beautifultimesinc.ca forward slash conference and workshops. If you have any comments or feedback, I would definitely love to hear about them. You can email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.